Hello, and welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast designed to address the concerns of black men and provide a forum for them to learn, feel empowered, and be the men they are called to be. Working actors are generally defined as those who consistently work in commercials, television, and film, and yet never receive true stardom. You will see them over and over again on your screen, but can't quite place their name or face. On today's Black Men Speak podcast, we have the epitome of three working black actors that have appeared in countless films, commercials, and TV shows. One is the brother of a former Miss America winner, and is a musician. The other appeared in one of my favorite soap operas, and once started his career late after successfully working as a corporate lawyer. We have Chris Williams, Hervé Claremont, and Christopher T. Wood in part one of The State of the Black Actor. They will talk about their journey in Hollywood and some of the challenges they face as black actors. On that note, let's start the show. Well, hello. Uh, welcome to Black Men Speak. You know, fasten your seat, fasten your seatbelt because I really don't know what yeah. may come out of these brothers' mouths, but we're gonna have a good time. If nothing we'll else, clean. you know. We'll and all I know, all of their GU fandom will be on. If they're not on right now, they will be at some point. So, hello, Chris Williams. How are you? Can you hear me? Of course, we can hear you. Okay, just put this show. <laughs> I was trying to do iPad and I was trying to do this and nothing was working, but now it's all fine. So, you know, to, we're just going to chat. I mean, it may take a little longer than normal just because I got three of you guys on. And, you know, I just, like I said, um, I love to back to you, give you guys a platform. I've seen some of you, but some I haven't seen in several years, but you guys have really uh, been doing your thing. And so um, we're going to start with the young, the young guy in the room. By about, I guess, a year, <laughs> a year or so. Uh, Hervé, Claremont. Yeah, that's you. How how you doing, sir? I'm great. I'm great. Actually, a uh, little hot in L.A. today, you know, so Ooh. it's uh, a little little steamy, you know, feeling Ooh. like East Coast weather right now. Yes. Well, yeah. And yeah, not today. Yeah, we got the California weather there it's in the 70s today. So, oh, wow. So, yeah. So, we, we're going to take it back a little bit, for a little bit and go current. But, you know, your first gig, as you know, was attorney jared hall and one life to live you know go yeah, that far that back some, some time ago you went back yeah. there didn't you yeah yeah had to you know <laughs> yeah. well i mean the really the thing i really wanted to know is you know how did you you know what were your feelings when you were on when you took that first gig uh well i mean honestly i was ecstatic uh i was in acting class uh there in new york and uh, one of the first things we did at the beginning of the year was to write down, you know, what your goals were by the end of that year. And um, and one of my goals was, you know, because I was just I was fairly new, and one of my goals was to be on a soap opera by the end of uh, by the end of the the year. And it seemed to manifest that, and it, it actually happened right before, probably about two or three months before uh, the year ended. So. Um, 
I was ecstatic about it. And, uh, you know, there was a time where daytime soap needed uh, more African-American representation. <laughs> uh, so uh, and that was me. At wow. least I was one. <laughs> you know what I was even more hyped about that you were actually young and a wrestler, yo. Um, I'm not playing, you know, <laughs> I saw that and I was like, wow, that was my, that was my soap. I mean, I, I missed a couple of psychology classes for that, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and so, um, so it's interesting. You talked about, you know, setting goals. So really what was, and I, I would definitely love to hear that from all of you guys. Cause you know, Christopher told me early on, but you guys would all see each other you know, on, you know, an audition. So, you know, really what would be your mind, what was your mindset when you would go to auditions? Irving? Oh, oh, you're talking to me. Uh, yeah. My mindset going into auditions. Uh, you know, it's a really competitive industry and uh, you find it really interesting that, you know, I'm always, hey, if it was meant for me, it was meant for me. And if it wasn't, mm-hmm. if it's one of my boys got it, someone that I knew got it, I'm happy for them. So, uh, you know, I always went in it with, uh, you know, I just prepared myself, made sure I was ready. And there's just so many people in that room that have got to really decide and agree upon you being that person that represents their product, that represents uh, what the character that they're looking for in the show or movie. So, you know, you never, you can't take it personally. And I think that's one of the reasons why we, the three of us, have been able to stay in it for as long as we have, because we're able to kind of separate ourselves off and just remember that this is a business and we can't take it personally. And if we believe in ourselves and believe in our craft uh, and someone will discover we're going to, we're going to be the right fit for somebody. So that was my my mindset always. Yeah. So it sounds very uh, collaborative. Did you guys both feel the same way? Chris and Chris? Well, I, I had a, I had an early uh, situation when I auditioned for a commercial that sort of, gave me instruction as to how how to go forward. I was up for some commercial, did my thing, and they called me and said, hey, Chris, come on in. So when I got to set, the director um, director came up to me and said, thanks for coming in. Got to admit, you are our second choice. And I was like, oh. He said, yeah, there was another guy. I think he went to RADA. He was clearly one of the best actors I've ever seen. His resume was outstanding. Uh, but we chose you because we thought in this context, it was better to have a real mechanic. <laughs> and I was like, okay. yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, we're going to go. For- yeah, because I used to, yeah, all right. And what it really taught me was the auditions were kind of a trick. And they usually just pick the person they actually think is the person. So it's not that, um, was I good? Was I bad? It's just you're giving them different looks, and hopefully five guys nail it, and then they get to pick the guy who's 5'9", 6'3", whatever they need. And therefore, that keeps me, at least, I think, as everyone was saying, from taking it personally. Mm, Okay. So at times, you may not even... You may not even nail the, the, I guess, the audition. It may be just the profile that they're looking for. Well, I would argue that I nailed it. They just didn't know I nailed it, you know? So that, but what, it, what I learned is these aren't experts that are looking at it. It's not their job to be expert actor selectors. It's their job to go with their gut. And you just go up there and let them go with their gut. Mm, okay. Chris, and I know, you, you know, you've been at the game a long time. And I know I, I, 
saw a recent uh, or saw a podcast and you said, well, you even think about you, you might have said a certain thing or there, you could have said this thing to make it even better. And does that still happen today? Yeah, a, a lot of times you have to understand that the it's it's really not about you. You are marketing. You are a product. And what product are you representing as well as how are you changing as an individual as that product? Because the stuff I was getting commercials for 10, 15 years ago are not the same commercials I'm getting now when it's Cialis and it's whatever older osteosporosis. You're like, oh. Zyrtec, baby. Zyrtec. Did you get your AARP yet? (laughs) So I do have a no-chance commercial running right now, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, But but a lot of it is, yeah. I mean, taking it personally, with commercial editions, definitely you can't take anything personally because it's just – how you look with the product or how you interact with the product. And a lot of times, um, like, uh, you know, I remember doing a Home Depot commercial a long time ago, and you're supposed to act like, you know, a Home Depot employee, this day out the other. And they said, okay, where's the paint? And I go, uh, that's, not my, that's not my apartment. I think someone down there can take you and help you out. I mean, that's basically what I, and I got the job because that's exactly what a Home Depot employee would do. <laughs> You can't, you can't, yeah, you can't take it, take it personally. And also what's interesting about strategy wise early on in, when I was auditioning for stuff, not necessarily for commercials, but for the actual stuff, people purposely sabotage you. And I didn't, I didn't know that's what people mm. were trying to do before I went in on audition, right? If you're going in next and they see that you're going in next, Hey, how, how's everything going? You, you good? No, oh yeah. They'll talk to you and engage you while you're trying to prepare for your scene. And, and I've talked and been like, oh, uh, this, Chris, we're ready for you. I'm like, you mother... Hmm. Really? Mm. Oh, wow. oh, Chris. <laughs> now, do you... I, I came in late. So do you think that is the activity of young... You were here in your 20s. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering... Yeah. I always People, found, I didn't start until I was 36. So... That's how competitive it, it can be because people would try to engage you to try to get you. And also there's, there's games that go on in the audition room with other people, other guys around, whether they're listening to an audition or blocking out, you know, you have to block out and black out of people and you have to have them, you know, at this, at, at this point, I'm like, excuse me. Like I have no yeah. problem being rude. Mm. To someone if they're just, or I just avoid everything altogether because that's messed me up a couple times when you know, someone would try to, engage me before and get me off my game before I go into the room. So these were other brothers that were yeah. more, it was more, hey, you know so it was what, more Chris, competitive back then. Not Chris, as collaborative. I as, nice. well, Keith, I was just saying, Chris, I was being nice that time. I didn't realize I distracted you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so it's, so it's uh, I mean, but people would purposely do wow. but actually, you know, going back to what we were saying, not taking it personally, you are a product and a lot of it is not about talents. I mean, it's about can you do the job, but you know, do you remind someone of their ex-boyfriend, or do you, you know, good or bad, or do you remind them of a their college roommate or something like that? You never know what the bias is going to be. Sometimes you get a job because you're the right fit. Sometimes you don't get the job because even if you're the right, the perfect person for it, they had someone else in mind they wanted it for. So, so that's interesting. Consider yourselves consider a project product. So, do you like? the product 
all three of you, do you like the products that you are now out there in Hollywood? Well, now I'm, old, I'm older dad with, I'm, I'm dad with older child, like 20, child in the 20s. So when I just did Upload, which is the last show I did called Upload on Amazon, and I play the father of the lead, and she's 25, 24, 25. When I read for it, which was two and a half years ago until it aired, mm. two and a half years you shot it two and a half years ago. We shot. We auditioned for it in December twenty seven, uh, twenty seventeen, and it aired May twenty twenty. Wow! That gives you an idea of you know. Wow. So, okay. uh, so, but, but I, I went in for this thing. It was sixty five, father of so and so dying of vape lung in the future, and I'm like, oh, I'm not obviously not can be a sixty five or a, a father of a twenty something year old. I'm like, well, physically I could. And then I put some makeup on and tried to make me look old. And I just went and did it. And everybody in there was in their 60s. And I was like, okay. And when they told me I got it, I was like, I, I didn't know really how to react. Like, mm. I was like, oh, really? Like, that's. that's Do I look that way? I <laughs> my category. I mean, I guess that's what I've, you know, turned into or whatever. So. Wow. Right. I, right. I, I will say on that point, I do think it's difficult often for people who are hiring to get the sense of age versus stature with African-American men due to lack of experience. So a lot of times they may put out something that says 65 because they want a certain gravitas. Mm -hmm. And then Chris comes in and he has that. And they're like, oh, that's we didn't realize, but that's actually what we're looking for. Whatever age you are is the right age, you know. So that is because I have gone in with particularly um, auditioning with a lot of white actors where they'll say, we want a CEO of a company and everybody's got gray hair. Everybody's north of 65, except for me. And partially it's, do we believe Chris Wood as a CEO? Okay, we do. So we're on our way. So that's kind of the, and that's a smart casting director to bring in that range. Right. Um, You know, and, so. But I also think we look young too, so that makes it. Except for uh, you, you don't, you don't have any gray hair unless you shave it off. But <laughs> you know, yeah, right. I mean, to be honest, we we look younger than we than we really are, and so I'm sure that probably also does play a part in that. Yes, uh, but as um, as uh, more black people get into different roles, white archetypes in specific roles have been well established. African-American archetypes are not as established. So who who's an investment banker? Who's a this? Who's a that? You know, uh, you, you need to develop those roles. And that's what we're in the process of doing. Right. Okay, great. That's awesome. So I wanted to, Irvay, I wanted to turn back to you a little bit, something more serious, because I know after right after George Floyd's uh, murder, you had posted um, an account of what which I was floored about, you know, there, you were going to the bank uh, and you to, I guess you were working as a manager at a, at a club. Is it a club or? Right. Right. Not, yeah, the club in uh, Wisconsin and M Street, Anastasia, yeah. back in the day, yeah. Anastasia, oh, fond memories, fond memories. But um, you were stopped for that. Um, uh, I would say it was a bit, little bit more than a stop. <laughs> or a, a, um, a, accosted, I guess is probably a better yeah, word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the one, what I wanted to know was that the first time you had actually mentioned that story out loud, and if it was, you know, how did you feel to to do that? Well, uh, it, you know, I've 
probably share the story with very few people, to be honest, because I think, uh, you know, the people that uh, I know, so many people just like, you know what, I didn't know about that story. And it's sometimes where, you know, it's, uh, it just came, it just came up when I saw, you know, what happened to George Floyd in that eight minutes, 46 seconds and sat there. And I was just like, the, the num- and then that was only one incident in which one of several in which I've had uh, weapons drawn on me by police officers for doing nothing but being black. Um, you know, it was just that just when I saw that, it just it just compelled me because over the years, I've always, you know, kind of uh, posted something about yet another unarmed black man being killed by the police. And I've always gotten pushback from friends saying, mm. you know, well, if he had done this or if he had done that, well, maybe he shouldn't have. So it was always put on the victim and the cops were never the ones that were in the wrong. And it just, you know, at that point I saw that and it was just like, it just, it came to a boiling point. I just, you know, I, I discussed it with my wife. It was just like, I just, I felt compelled to share. I had to share. And I wanted, my purpose was to get other people to share because I feel like every black man has had that experience. Uh, or if not, they know someone who's had that experience because it's, you know, just working in the D.C. area, I think it's ha- it happened to me three times. And, you know, when you're, you know, when you're just doing your job, you're walking around during the day, you know, you're, you're, you're walking, walking around as a business person. And the last thing you expect to have is, you know, almost a dozen guns pointed at you. And, you know, it just takes one person to get nervous, one person like to hear right. a bang. One person, yeah. Because when you hear, I mean, I don't know if it's actually true or not, you know, my, my cousin is a police officer, but, you know, when one officer fires, the rest of them do as well, just because there's some, there's that camaraderie amongst that group. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I had to, I, I was, I felt compelled to do it. And that's why I shared it because I wanted others to share the story. Yeah, it was, it's a, it's a tough thing to to actually have to hear about and as well as to talk about. Um, and I wonder, what about you, Christopher and Chris? Have you guys, you know, you guys have been out in the West Coast a while. You know, have you had those same uh, kind of instances that have uh, happened to you out there or at all? I was only worried one time when I got pulled over. Um, and that was print and that was principally because I had three other white people in the car and I knew I was getting pulled over for basically nothing. And I was worried that they may not understand how compliant you have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, they may demand respectful treatment or, you know, decent behavior. And I was like, just be quiet. <laughs> Don't say anything. Don't worry about what he says. Uh, and that fortunately they were, uh, but that's the only time where I've been really panicked. Cause I said, if they, if they start getting upset with how I'm treated, this could go South. Mm, right. But I have to say, and I will say this on behalf of LAPD, and it's sort of the same, same token. I have been stopped by LAPD, particularly when I first came to LA, cause I didn't have a registration. I was a New Yorker. I didn't know all these things. And more than one police officer said, you need to get all this in order. You do not want to be stopped. That is not a safe thing. So don't don't go drive. Don't think it's just driving around without these things. It's important. And these were all white police officers talking to me as a new Los Angelino. And uh, I listened. Wow, that's nice. 
that they were you, did you take that as a warning because of the color of your skin or did you just take out the warning just yes. to make sure you have these in yes i mean it was yes i did uh they said get you know basically get your stuff together you you, you don't want these because it's really scary for myself and for them you're driving on a main street and then you have to pull off onto a side dark street and there in the two times that i've been pulled over mm. it's just me and them uh mm. so mistakes can happen so their main point is don't put anyone in this position don't be in this position it is not safe and if and anybody I, else, I will say if anybody's watching don't pull over on the side of dark street i pull have learned that since on the main street yeah 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 I remember I was in Culver City, and then I, I was driving. And I went through a, a it was green, and went through, and the cop pulled up behind me and followed me for about yeah. a mile with no lights on, but just followed me from. And I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I can see that they're. And then all of a sudden, they turned their lights on and they pulled me over and they said, "You went through the, the red light." And I'm like, "When did I go through the oh two st stops ago?" So I'm like, well, "I've never had a ticket before." And then the other was like, and they gave me a ticket, and I was just really. Thankful they didn't find my crack or my machine gun. So, <laughs> that was the one relief that I they didn't. That is, that is always yeah. because blessing. You know, blessing. When I was fucking on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! That's, that's just too funny. That's too funny. Well, that's you know that's just a great segue to you, Mister Williams, because. Um, you know, in kind of doing the research and of course I've know, know you guys and for a long time, but you know, within, with in school, you know, we're all, we're all look trying to get an education, doing this, doing our thing. But you, um, you found out sometime later that you had, you were, uh, you were, you were diagnosed for ADHD. ADD, uh, yeah. yeah. Like, or not, A or ADD. Right. Just attention deficit sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, ADD, sorry. And so how did that feel, you know, finding that out as an adult? Well, and how did well, it change and how did it change your preparation for I for had acting? so many indications growing up uh, that I had ADD, but I could get beyond it because for instance, my car the the bus used to stop right out in front of my house. Like literally walk across the street, get on the bus, and goes around, you go to school. When I used to see the bus come to the front of the house, I was like, okay, that means I got 10 minutes to get all my stuff <laughs> ready. And they come, the bus would come, and then I'd start throwing stuff on, and grab, and then I'd have to run almost like a half a mile mm. down to where they picked me up. And they knew to wait for me because they knew I wasn't going to find the, you know, get the bus in the first place. So things like, uh, and then always procrastinating on things and obviously being distracted by so many things. And then, when I was in therapy in my mid late twenties, she's like, I think you may have ADD. And I was like, well, it kind of makes sense that I, you know, I've gotten away with it for so long, last minute stuff and totally being distracted. And then I, I got put on, on meds for a while. Um, just to, like uh, it, what it does, it's, there, it's amphetamines that for people with ADD, it literally counteracts instead of, and that's why a lot of people with ADD are on, uh, do cocaine because it speeds your body up, but it focuses your brain more. So it's like mm. a counter counteractive uh, thing. A stimulant will will make you actually focus more. So, 
And I was on that for, uh, and, and it helped actually me concentrating in my uh, auditions because I would walk into an audition and I'm taking, I'm not focusing on what I'm doing. I'm looking at everybody else or how I'm being looked at and how I'm being seen. And, and I would call the audition vacuum where I get sucked in and then I'd come out of the audition like, I don't even remember what just happened because I, I wasn't focused or retaining everything. And it was a, it was a t- tricky process to try to get a handle on. And uh, now I, I at least know how to handle it a lot better. Uh, and that's what I said, you know, being distracted by people before the audition, you know, I used to chat and this, that, and the other and be friendly. And then all of a sudden forget that I, what I was there to focus on. So hmm. Yeah, that was uh, that was it. That was a challenge, and 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 I still, you know, wrestle with it. Getting my working, my my writing done, and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, it's, it's difficult, but okay. you know, yeah. And I always also found out that you 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 lend your voice to a lot of video games. Yeah, I've done video yeah. games and cartoons, and yeah. Were you a big video game player back in the day? I, I was. I'm, yeah, I was. Um, and then I got my PS. I have a PS3 now. I'm like old. So I don't even play it anymore. But I'm I'm big into pinball. I have a pinball machine, and oh okay, I'm a little, I'm a little addicted to pinball. So yeah, wow, that's yeah. that's awesome. That, but also with ADD, I mean, there's a there's a pinball arcade in New York that I go to on like third uh, third street in, in the 20s, and I checked into my hotel at uh, 7:30. They weren't ready for me. I ate breakfast, went to the arcade. They have a 24 hour arcade. Uh, no, 24. But uh, all day, twenty dollars for all day. Went at eleven, went back to the hotel at four thirty, checked in, ate dinner, and then went back from seven to uh, uh, eight till closing. So I was there nine hours. Didn't eat didn't, didn't <laughs> nine hours, it, but I was so locked in, it made me feel so good. That's yeah. so that'll tell you the extent. Of it. So I guess Vegas might be a nice place for you, huh? <laughs> like, exactly. I can only take two hours, two two days of Vegas, and then my brain brain will explode. Wow! Wow! Okay, um, Mr. Mr. Wood, um, you were Georgetown Chimes, is that correct? Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's kind of like a, a disease you can't get rid of. So I still am. <laughs> oh, you still? Oh, you still are. It's oh, I am very much. So, it's yeah. a, oh, so it's a kind of a fraternity type thing. Uh, yeah, fraternity <laughs> is kind of the Georgetown Chimes, I would say the other way. Yeah. <laughs> they never um, let they never let you go. They never let you forget. What? T- tell me about a little bit about that. Um, what did you enjoy about 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 being a chime? Well, I love to sing. Um, you had to learn a massive amount of songs to get in. So that was challenging. I also, the group has an Irish heritage, which I knew essentially nothing about and really took an interest in because if you listen, if you read a lot of the language used against the Irish by the English, I, I mean, you could just, pull the Irish out, put in black people. And I mean, it's the same, it's shiftless. It's, mm-hmm. it's all the same language. And I, at the time, I was like, I, that can't be. And, uh, and just their songs and the music that comes out of Ireland uh, is very storytelling oriented. So you could, you could learn history uh, uh, just by listening to some of them. And uh, so that's what drew me in. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. Also, 
it was a time, particularly back then, where as a black student or a black person, you were always the first black something wherever you went into the ice cream store, or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, so you could get you could get a plaque just walking down the street. So, were, were you the first black member? Yeah, yeah. They had never done wow. that. It was it was seen as something. I'm sure a lot of people thought it couldn't happen, or you know, just wouldn't. And uh, I just thought, since I'd lived overseas and I'd gone to uh, different schools all around the world, I thought I might be the kind of guy that could pull that off. Um, so that was an added uh, bonus or focus. So I have an interesting question because you talked about Ireland, Irish. So what what was the blackest song you guys ever sang? <laughs> you oh, know, uh, I, I would say, I'd say there's a song called Patriot Game. Um, that's the one where I really, it, it, speaking in those terms, and it's um, basically about this young kid who wants to be in the rebellion. And he, and he talks about um, the honor of it, but he describes it as a patriot game because, of course, he, even when he dies, he's still wanting to exact revenge. And at the time, particularly in the U.S., uh, D.C., I think, wasn't it the slaughter capital of the U.S. at the time when we were there? The most uh, young black kids dying. Crime, I mean, we had crime, just this massive death mm -hmm. among high school students in the U.S. And yet you you saw a lot of uh, perhaps honor or nobility attached to it. And it just seemed like the same thing that Ireland may have faced this game that everyone's playing. And the only one who's losing was us. Mm -hmm. uh, and Patriot Game is the only song I've really come across that uh, that covers that. And just to have this very, 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 in my view, white um, culture with this message that applies to black culture, which in in the U.S. is supposed to be an impossibility. The, the two groups will never have any similarities. And I was like, no, actually, there we are, right there. Mm -hmm. So I, I just thought that was – it was interesting. It's not like we had to – I, that's that's what grabbed me. Okay, that's um, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean because, yeah, back back in DC around that time, it was you know it was tough uh, with the southeast and everything else going on. You know it's you know it's changed dramatically, um, but the fact that um, you're able to find um, you know blackness in the Patriot game is awesome. So, um, so that's a kind of a good segue to some of the things that are going on right now. So is there, you know, as far as your role, your roles that you guys have taken and which has been diverse from, from commercials to different movies, but is there, was there ever a part that you took, but deep down it kind of, you know, as a black man, you didn't want to take it. Well, I'll jump in on that. Um, so I was up, well, I was in, I had booked a, Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial. I remember mm. that one. <laughs> but already, you're kind of that was. I may have been another. I've done. I've done two of them. But I remember being at the at the um, um, at the shoot, and there was a G Garvin is this, this black chef, and there were some other folks there, and and uh, one someone comes out and he's like, "Hey man," the so way he's like, "They're gonna make you dancing there," and I said. 
what are you talking about? He's like, watch. And I'm like, all right, whatever, let's just do it. So I, I walk, walk in there, uh, and the that's like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to shoot some some fun things that we're going to do. Obviously, the whole set is what some fun things. And um, what, what I want you to do first is that I want you to take a piece of chicken, and I want you to just wow. give you your best moves. Wow. And I was like, wow. what, like, what you want me to say? What? Oh, you know, like, you just like you know, have fun with it. And I was like, oh man. I was like, okay. Well, try not to be too much. I'm like, okay, now we're gonna have you act like we're all having everyone act like chickens. Mm. So if you can, and I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm. <laughs> oh wow! wow. Mm. And then I came out and I said, so, so I said to G Garvin, I was like. Hey man, they're gonna make you. He's like, come on, man. I was like, watch. So I was kind of like, wow, there's still that shows that there's no representation of if they had one black folk person, yep. whether in the room or on the set, or someone say, or clients say, I don't know if that's a good idea to have. <laughs> but yeah, no, right. no, no, there's no accountability. No one knew any any differently, so to speak. What what year was that? Oh, this was uh, at least what hmm. fifteen years ago. It's a long time ago. Fifteen. That probably wouldn't happen today, huh? That uh, probably wouldn't happen today. <laughs> no. you, you, my three favorite words are "you would think." <laughs> you would. <laughs> my three favorite words in Hollywood. You would think that. Mm-hmm. I, I went on an audition when I, this is like twenty when I was first starting out, playing an an African American with light eyes. Or mixed Indian, this, that, and the other. And he looked at me. He said, "Are, are you are you light?" I was like, uh, "Yeah, I mean, I got a tan, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty light." He's like, "Okay." He's like, "So what's with the blue eyes?" I said, "Oh, my parents both have brown eyes, but I have blue eyes." He's like, "Oh, somebody got bopped way back then, huh?" Mm. Mm. And you're technically not allowed to beat someone on set, right. so I'm like. And I didn't know know any better because I was still you know hungry and green. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't know. I was like, I mean, I didn't know even how to react. React so. There's a lot of microaggressions and auditions and stuff like that all the time. Being not urban enough, I've been not, you know, black enough or, yeah. So. They used to use the term. uh, Could you be more street like? Ethnic. (laughs) Remember that? You guys remember that? Uh, Right. A little bit more street. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> I, I have, I have actually, uh, I think because I came in late, I've avoided a lot of that. Um, and but I've specifically been labeled. I mean, you could see on the description, it's always my whole career was affable African American, affable Afam. I mean, that was it. And mm. you know, if you raised your hand for something that was a little less affable, it's like Chris, you're affable. What are you? Come on, go away. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> Uh, but I think it had dramatically, uh, Chris Williams was there at 23, 22, 26, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm not there for another full 10 years. Wow. Okay. So things, things had shifted. So things had, you know, had shifted within, within well, that two years. Yeah. I, I don't know that they'd shifted, but time had passed. They had shifted. Like the terminology that you would get in auditions was, it's, it's completely changed. You know, there were yeah. things that they were not for. They were told not to say. Don't say be more urban. Don't say. Don't say be more street. I have to forget some of the other terms that they used 
uh, when I first started. And uh, but definitely, you don't see any of that anymore. And and uh, either Christopher or Irv, they have they've run up never run up against Axe Taller. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> never had to deal with that. Yeah. So, so what are some? You know, you, you guys mentioned micro microaggression. So, what are some of those microaggressions that are still out there today? I think they're. I I, I actually think if, if you're coming on set today, they're they're particularly careful and also much more versed in what it is uh, all all the diversity that an african american character can bring in i now that's not putting you on a sitcom where you're there every day and you you're you're creating this archetype or something like that so i'm usually on for a week maybe if i you know if i'm lucky but i i do see them struggling mightily against uh such things any individual can be whatever but um that that's a big that's a big mistake these days i mm. i think um uh so uh i i actually have not seen it um certainly right, right. to what chris williams is talking about in their very is there a diversity on the other side like on the casting director side where they have a you know where they can relate to the black actor and black actress some some <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not not the uh, just like I think it were anywhere else in whatever industry there might be. There's a few, but mm-hmm. you know, it's not like uh, you expect to walk in the casting room and expect to see someone that looks like you very often. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Are there? I, I guess I have to ask the question. I know there are black casting directors, but I haven't seen any men. Am I missing? Is there someone? Is there a man? Uh, in in uh, Robbie Reed's. Uh... Her, her collective is a dude Right. Um, yeah. No, I don't know of any African American no. main cast director. That's that's interesting. Is that is it primarily a female uh, led white kind of industry? Female. Yeah, white female. Yeah. Um, one of the problems that it that exists in Hollywood, and a friend of mine who's a below the line guy has talked about it, is to get into Hollywood. Usually, outside of acting. You have to start out as a relatively unpaid intern. So you need money for that um, because something else has to be supporting you. So that's that's that huge block right there. Uh, mm-hmm. How are you going to intern at a casting office um, making zero money for a job mm-hmm. that pays little money? Uh, that, keeps, that keeps black actors out of theater school, out of all... This is a... This is a field that supports uh, the very wealthy in their artistic endeavors. Uh, everyone else, that's a bit of a grind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can see that. So therefore, the the in, individuals that are in the, that industry where they're doing the casting or even the acting, um, they're probably friends or their parents are in higher-up positions. They've, they've been in Hollywood a long time that allows allows for that to continue you can cut your teeth you know because your expenses are being paid you know somewhere else so yeah i don't know if they have connections high up that certainly helps but if you don't need to uh, a huge amount of money to make your rent you can do these jobs if you do uh that may be a limitation it's still possible but it's just harder right we were having so much fun 
we had to have a part two, so stay tuned. Next week, we'll talk about Tyler Perry's new studio and where black acting is going in Hollywood. Once again, make sure you SSC. Subscribe, share, and comment to the Black Men Speak podcast. If you have a comment or a topic for our show, please send it over to info at keithdent.com. Once again, we will leave you with a quote, and this one is from Sidney Poitier. I never had an occasion to question color, therefore I only saw myself as what I was, a human being. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak podcast. Peace.